Let's pray, and then we'll dive into our study today. Lord, we thank you so much just for the way that you are moving and working in our midst. Lord, we thank you for these things that are coming up that, Lord, we just know you're going to work in powerful ways. And Lord, today, as we gather together here in this place to study your word, we ask that you would speak to us by your Holy Spirit, that you would do a work in this place. I thank you, Lord, for each and every person here who's a part of our church family. I I thank you, Lord, for those who may be here visiting today or for the first time. And we just invite you, God, by your Spirit to minister to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, the book, The Purpose Driven Life by Pastor Rick Warren has sold over 50 million copies worldwide. It remains the best-selling hardcover nonfiction book in history. And it's the second most translated book, second only to the Bible. The Purpose Driven Life has been translated into 137 languages. So here's the question. Why was this book so popular with so many people across the world? I think the answer is this, is there is a deep-seated longing in the heart of every single human being to know what is my purpose? Why am I here? Well, here's another question that I think is worth pondering. What is the purpose or the mission of the church? Well, I think it really depends on who you talk to. There are some people today that their focus seems to be that the purpose of the church is to make Jesus more relevant or to make Jesus more popular. Others would say that the purpose is that they want to politicize Jesus. And for some, the purpose of the church is to instill a moral upbringing in their kids. That's why so many people come back to church once they start having children. For others, the church is more of a social club. It's where they have their their friendships, and and, and there are still others who look at the church as just a good place for um, some moral entertainment. And some of those ideas are maybe part of the reason why there's a lot of people who aren't interested in church, and maybe why the church today isn't as effective as it could be, because we don't know what our purpose and mission is. You know, it was G.K. Chesterton who said this, we don't want, as the newspapers say, a church that will move with the world. We want a church that will move the world. And the early church that we have been studying about here in the book of Acts, that was their testimony. They moved their world. And here in the book of Acts, we have been seeing really the beginnings of what we could call the first Jesus people movement, the first, the very first Jesus revolution. And the church of Jesus Christ there in the book of Acts was this unstoppable force that literally turned their world upside down. And they were doing so in the midst of heavy opposition from outside forces. But even despite this heavy opposition, the church continued to grow radically and impact their culture. And they were doing it at a time when it was not popular at all to be a follower of Jesus Christ. In fact, it was quite dangerous to be a follower of Jesus Christ. But 
God was moving. We saw the very beginning of that opposition, the first wave of it, we could say, in chapter 4, when the religious leaders grabbed the apostles and tried to threaten them and put physical harm upon them and then tried to silence them from talking about Jesus. Well, here in chapter 5, we're going to see three more waves of opposition that come against the early church. But what we're going to see is that Jesus continues to move powerfully through his people despite the opposition. Now, if you were with us last week, we looked at how the enemy sought to infiltrate the church from the inside through compromise and how God dealt with that to bring purity to his church and that purity resulted in power. We saw in verses 12 through 16, there were more miracles and more healings and more people that were coming to faith in Jesus. Well, today we're going to see three more waves of opposition that come against the church. The first we see here in verse 17. It says, then the high priest rose up and all those who were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with indignation. They see how the Lord is moving and working, and you would think these religious leaders would be radically stoked, but instead they are furious. Now, the Sadducees were a small minority of very wealthy and very influential Jewish leaders. The Sadducees were the theological liberals of their day, and they were the ones who collaborated with Rome. They were the Rome's puppets in keeping the peace there in Israel, and so they were the ruling party there in Israel. And when it says here that they were filled with indignation, literally it means this, they were boiling over with jealousy. You see, their authority and their power and their popularity was being threatened by this new move, this new work of Jesus followers, and they didn't like it one bit. And it's been said that what you are filled by is what you are controlled by, and this jealousy that was filling them was controlling their actions. And so we read in verse 18 that they laid hands on the apostles and threw them into the common prison. And we can say again, it's like, here we go again. We just saw this back in chapter 4. Now, when it says the common prison, think county jail. That's, that's where they were throwing them. They're putting in, in that place with just all the you know, normal criminals that were there. And one of the things that we'll see, though, over and over again in the book of Acts is that prison is no problem to God. And I love this because we see in Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas get put into prison in Philippi. And at midnight in the prison, they're singing, they're worshiping God. And God sends an earthquake to open up the prison doors. And a whole bunch of other people get saved as a result of that. We'll get to that in probably a couple months. Um, But uh, (laughs) the way we're going, right? But here in Acts chapter 5, in verse 19, we see another divine deliverance. Notice what it says. But at night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. Now, this gives us some idea to God's sense of humor. Do you know God has a sense of humor? I mean, just look around the room, all right? (laughs) God has a sense of humor. He made you. He chose you. um, He definitely has a sense of humor, right? But, But this, what's so funny about this is that the Sadducees, they don't believe in angels, 
They don't believe in angels. They don't believe in the resurrection, that there's a resurrection. So what does God do to mess with their minds? I'm going to send an angel to take these guys out of prison. I mean, to me, this is just hilarious. So we see here in verse 19, a divine deliverance. And then that is followed by a divine commission. Notice verse 20. The angel said to the apostles, go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. Listen to me. One of the reasons why the early church was so powerful is this. They were very clear about what their mission and what their purpose was. And today we're going to see what happens to a group of believers who know their mission and purpose in this culture. We're going to see what happens with a group of people who are committed to being on mission together. And so we see here, they're given this divine commission. Let's read it again. Go stand in the temple and speak all to all the people all the words of this life. Listen, this was their mission. This was their purpose. Go and declare to everyone. Go and declare to all the people the words of this life. Remember Jesus said this in John chapter 10. He says, I have come that you might have life and that you would have it more abundantly. Listen. To the person who's wanting to know, what is my purpose? Listen, your primary purpose is to know Jesus. Your primary purpose is to know God. It's to live in a relationship with him through his son. An abundant life, what we could call overflowing life, is only found in Jesus Christ. Remember when Jesus, during his earthly ministry, he was teaching. And he was saying some things that were kind of difficult. So much so that the crowds began to leave him in droves. I mean, just a lot of people suddenly like, and we can't handle this, what he's teaching. And they just began to leave. And Jesus looked at his disciples and said, are you also going to leave me? And it was Peter who stood up and said this in John chapter six, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And also we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter says, where are we going to go in you is life. We've come to understand that life is really about knowing you and living for you. The apostle John would later write this in his epistle. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, speaking of Jesus, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. And then he would add in verse four, in him was life and that life was the light of men. And you see, the early church, they understood that their mission was to declare and to talk about the life that was found in Jesus. Jesus, who left heaven and came to this earth to die on the cross, to pay the price for the sins of humanity who were separated from God because of their sin. But three days later, he would rise again from the dead to give life, abundant life to anyone and everyone who would put their hope and faith in him. That was their mission. And guys, that is our mission as well. To speak the words, 
of this life. And we need to know why we are here as a church, as well as as individuals. And listen, let me just say, we are not here to help people figure out how to have their best life now. That's not why we're here. Nor, or no, we are here to help people know that they are where they're going in the next life. That's why we're here. We're not here to push a political agenda, even though politics definitely have their place. But no, we are here to promote a king and a kingdom that is not of this world. And we, need, we can't forget that. And listen, if we want to be used effectively as the church and as individuals who make up the church, the body of Jesus Christ, if we want to be used effectively in this broken world, we need to know what our mission is. We need to preach Jesus. We need to understand that our primary focus needs to be the souls of men. That the Bible says about us as believers that we are called to be what what it calls ministers of reconciliation. That we are called to help reconcile people who are far from God to become followers of Jesus and to know Jesus. The early church understood their mission. And here's what I want to spend the rest of our time in talking about this morning is this. What happens? What do we see here in Acts chapter 5? What happens to a group of people who know their mission and purpose? And there's four things that I want to point out that we see that, the early, that, that allowed the early church to be so effective because they knew what their mission was. So if you're, if you're taking notes, number one, people who know their mission don't procrastinate. They don't procrastinate. Notice it says the angel gives them this divine commission in verse 20 to go out into the temple, speak all the words of this life, and then notice verse 21, and when they heard that, they entered the temple early in the morning and taught. Notice that. They're led out that night, and it says early in the morning, they get up and they go right to the temple. It doesn't say that they, they, they went the first chance that they got. It doesn't even say that they went around noontime. No, following their release that night, the apostles headed straight for the temple early in the morning. And listen, this is one of the traits that we see about the early church, these, these followers of Jesus here in the book of Acts, is that they so often responded to the instructions that they were given immediately. Can everybody say immediately? immediately. No procrastination. Do you know what the largest nation is in the world today? It's procrastination. (laughs) Seriously. Many of us live in that world. We, We live in that nation, don't we? That our tendency is to say, I'll take care of that tomorrow. I will deal with that next time. Okay, moment of truth. You are in church, okay? How many of you have some project or something in your life that you have been putting off for a long time? Yes, me too. I can put both hands up, right? (laughs) We have those things in our life. 
And you know, procrastination may not be a big deal as it relates to everyday things of life. It might not even be a big deal in your marriage if your spouse is really, really understanding. But procrastination is a real problem in our spiritual life. You see, procrastination stifles the work of God in our lives. Can I encourage you on something? Can I encourage you, quit worrying about what's going to happen in your life five years from now. Sometimes we get so focused on the future that it distracts us from the present. Quit worrying about what's going to happen in your life five years from now and just do the next thing. Just do what God is calling you to do right now. You know, I read of one very wealthy inventor who said, without exception, after I have invented something and patented it, at least 10 men come to me and say, I thought of that a long time ago. (laughs) And then he added, the difference between their poverty and my wealth is they thought about it and I did it. I wonder how many people watch Shark Tank and watch somebody get a million dollar deal and think, I thought of that. I had that same idea. You thought about it. Somebody else did something about it. Listen, you want to be rich in the Lord. When the Lord speaks to your heart, be it in a Bible study, be it in your own personal devotions, be it in a book that you're reading, be it through a friend who is speaking into your life, learn to respond immediately. You see, when you do that, what you are doing is you're giving the Holy Spirit an opportunity to move in your life. And the more that you respond to the Lord when he's speaking to you, the more he's going to speak to you. And the more that you respond to his leading, the more doors that he's going to open up for you. Let me ask you this question. Does God's voice seem distant to you? Do you feel like, you know, he, he's just, you're just not hearing from him? Can I ask you this question? When's the last time you did hear from him? And did you respond? Did you follow through? Because maybe the reason why you're not hearing from him right now is he's waiting. He's already given you instructions. And he knows that point A is going to lead to point B. But you can't get to point B until you follow through on point A. The very thing that he's been talking to you about. And so one of the things that we often see in the book of Acts about the early church is that they respond immediately to the leading of the Lord. And so this is number one. People who know their mission don't procrastinate. Now, what happens next here is is hilarious. I just love this. Look at the second part of verse 21. It says, but the high priest and those with him came and called the council together with all the elders of the children of Israel. And so this is the high priest shows up with his whole entourage and sent to the prison to have them brought, to have the apostles brought. But when the officers came and did not find them in the prison, they returned and reported. So these guys are coming back and they're like, hey, we've got some good news and we've got some bad news. Which do you want first? All right, give us the good news. Okay, we, we found the prison. Okay, that's good. And the, the doors were shut securely. Okay, that's great. And the guards were in place. Excellent. Now here's the bad news. But when we opened the doors, we found no one inside. There were no prisoners there. I mean, don't you just love the Bible? I mean, this is just hilarious. 
And then it says, now when the high priest and the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these things, they wondered what the outcome would be. Okay, understand this. The word wonder, they wondered, this is a very poor translation. If you like to write in your Bible, you, you can write next to it. It was beyond way beyond this in, in the Greek. The Greek means they were at their wit's end. I mean, they weren't just like pondering, like, hmm, that's interesting. No one was there. It was like, what? Like they're going bananas. These guys are, we would say they were panicking. They were freaking out. What are we going to do with this group? It just seems like we can't keep them. And then verse 25 adds to the humor when it says, so one came and told them saying, look, the idea is, behold, you're not going to believe this. And the men whom you put in prison, guess where they're at now? (laughs) They're standing in the temple and teaching the people. They're right back where they were when you arrested them yesterday, in other words. The apostles are like those trick birthday candles. <laughs> you, know, you blow them out, they go out, and then they keep popping up. That's what, these, that's what these guys are doing. I mean, they just keep coming on. It's like deja vu. And so they're like, okay, go arrest them again. And here we see the second wave of opposition in verse 26. Then the captain went with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people lest they should be stoned. They're like realizing, okay, their popularity is getting huge. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council and the high priest and asked them saying, did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? The high priest says, look, we didn't tell you you couldn't go out and preach. We just told you that we didn't want you to talk about someone. And he doesn't even want to say the name of Jesus himself. Here's the second thing. When you know the mission, you don't get sidetracked on other things or trivial matters. Their mission was to declare all the words of this life, the life that was found in Jesus, and they were consistent with the mission. In fact, turn back just to chapter 2 for a minute um, and look at verse 38. This is Peter's first sermon. Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of who? Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. Turn to chapter 3. Look at verse 6. Peter says to the layman, In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Turn to chapter 4, verse 10. They're asking, how did this happen? And he says, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands before you whole. Listen, for the apostles, it was all about the name of Jesus. I think they would love it if they walked into our church and saw our sign, simply Jesus. They would be like, yep, that's it. That's what we're about. It's all about Jesus. And I want you to notice verse 28. This is the last part of it. (laughs) Go back to chapter 5. Those religious leaders, the Sadducees said, and you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine. What a wonderful indictment that is, right? 
You have filled, their doctrine was about Jesus. You have filled our city with the name of Jesus. What do we want to fill Vista with? Who, who, yeah, amen. Thank you. <laughs> who are we wanting to make famous? Jesus. Not Calvary Chapel. Not Calvary Vista. Not ourselves. It's the name of Jesus. That was their focus. The latter part of verse 28 is also interesting because they say this, you intend to bring this man's blood on us. They're saying, are you blaming us of his death? Is his blood on us? And that's very interesting terminology, that, that phrase, his blood on us. Because if you remember back in Matthew chapter 27, during the trial of Jesus, Pilate comes out to these religious leaders in this crowd and says, you know, I, I've been talking to this, this Jesus and, and, and I don't find any fault in him. I think we should just let him go. And they begin to scream vehemently, no, he needs to be crucified. And Pilate, who was way more interested in the approval of people than he was the approval of God, said, okay, you know, and this was his way of trying to, you know, he says, I'm innocent of this man's blood. He's washing his hands. I'm innocent of this man's blood. And remember what they said? They cried out and said, may his blood be upon us and our children. I mean, this is like 50, 60, maybe 70 days prior to this. And now they're questioning, are you saying that his blood is going to be upon us? I'm just saying what you guys said. (laughs) That's what Peter could have said. But I want you to notice how Peter responds in verse 29. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than man. You're telling us that we can't speak in his name. Hey, listen, we have to obey God and not man. And here's point number three. People who know their mission are more interested in pleasing God and not men. They realize this, that there's only one audience that I need to be concerned about. And it's an audience of one. It's God. And with that type of conviction, they were an unstoppable force. And I just want to pause right here and say, this is a great proof text for peaceful civil disobedience. That when our world, when when our government is saying that we can't do something that goes against the Bible, that, excuse me, we have to stand up and say, sorry, but we need to obey God and not men. So if our government ever says like they do in Canada today, you cannot call homosexuality a sin, pastor. If you do, we're going to put you in jail. Well, sorry, we're going to say, I got to obey God and not men. Nothing. I mean, we love people who are homosexuals. We want them to come to meet Jesus just like anybody else. But we have to say just like adultery is a sin, homosexuality is a sin, stealing is a sin. I mean, hey, sexual immorality is sin in any form. We have to say that. And so if I get put in jail, you have to come visit me. Okay. Um, All right. That's the reality. But it goes beyond just the church. It's even, this is simply, you know, good advice for living that you need to live in a such a way that you're going to obey God and not man. So for instance, you're a young person, some young people here, and your boyfriend says he wants to have sex with you. Say, sorry, I got to obey God and not man. And not only am I not going to do that, but I'm breaking up with you because <laughs> we're even suggesting that. All right. <laughs> 
If your boss wants you to lie or do something that, you know, is, is cheating, say, sorry, I can't do that. I need to obey God and not man, even if that means you get fired. It's making that stand in our lives. It's, you know, the Bible says the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but the fear of man is a snare. And when we're walking in the fear of God, what we're saying is I'm living for an audience of one. But note this, because they were focused on pleasing God and not men, they didn't shy away from hard conversations. Notice what Peter does here in verse 30. He says, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. That's pretty blunt, right? Him God exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior and to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we have his, we are his witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Peter was blunt here. He's not holding back. He's saying, look, guys, it's true. You did crucify Jesus. You did say, may his blood be upon our hands. But God raised him from the dead. And this is what, don't miss this. This is what the religious leaders were missing. This is where they were missing the point. All they were hearing was, you crucified the Messiah. But they weren't hearing, but God has raised him from the dead. And God has made a way for anyone who would just turn from their sin and turn to him, that they would be forgiven and they could have eternal life. And you know what? People do the same thing today. They hear us say, you know, the Bible says that you are a sinner. I'm a sinner. And they get offended by that. And they don't want to hear the rest of the message. But the rest of the message is, yeah, you're a sinner, so am I. But Jesus came and paid the price for your sins. And he rose again so that you could have life. The Bible says that we've all missed the mark of God's perfection, that we are all unrighteous. That's what, un, being, you know, righteous is perfect. Unrighteous is not perfect. None of us are perfect in God's eyes. We're not even perfect in one another's eyes. We're honest. But then the Bible says, but there is a righteousness of God that's apart from the law, apart from God's standard. And that righteousness is found in through faith in Jesus Christ. And when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, God looks at you and he says, you are now justified. What does that mean? Declared righteous. That's how he sees you in Christ. Justification, just as if you never sinned. And people, they, they, they get so offended. Oh, you called me a sinner. Yeah, we all are. But here's the other part of that message. And so Peter uses an interesting phrase here when he says that God has exalted Jesus to his right hand to be both prince and savior. And the fact that Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God is really a key theme in Scripture. The right hand, of course, is the place of honor and power and authority. And the scriptures make numerous references to Jesus being exalted to that place. But here's what I want you to catch. The word prince here means pioneer. It means the one who leads the way. The originator of our salvation. The book of, of Hebrews says that Jesus is the author, the originator of our faith. And this word prince in the Greek, it's the word archikos. And it was a, a, 
a word that was used in a very special way amongst fishermen. And Peter was a fisherman, and so he might have had this in mind. You see, on each ship, on each boat, there was always a strong swimmer. The strong swimmer was called the Archikos, and whenever that boat would get in trouble, it would get in a storm. And remember, when they fished, they didn't fish super far out in the sea. Um, it was more, you know, they were out in a lake, but on the Sea of Galilee, that, that big lake in Israel, they would have these huge storms that would just come out of nowhere. So the Archikos, whenever that would happen, he would dive into the water with a rope tied around his waist. He would swim to the shore, and then he would attach that rope to something secure to hold the boat, and then everybody else on the boat was able to get to shore by hanging on to that rope. This is the word that he's using here for, for Prince, the Archikos. Well, you know what? Jesus saw our world in the storm of sin. And he dove into our world so that he could secure the hope or the rope and the hope of our salvation. And the book of Hebrews says he's the author of our faith, but it also says this, and he's the finisher. And I love this because Jesus doesn't just secure the way, but the Bible also tells us that He's faithful to complete the work that he's begun in each one of us. So he doesn't just secure the rope and say, okay, I hope you make it. But he says, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make sure you make it. I'm going to help you. He's the author and the finisher of our faith. So I think it's a really, really cool picture. But when Jesus, or excuse me, when Peter says that Jesus has exalted to the right hand of God, the religious leaders, they didn't want to hear this. So they were furious Notice verse 33. And so when they heard this, they were furious and plotted to kill them. These are the religious leaders. And they're plotting murder again. They already did this to Jesus. Now they're going to do it to the apostles. But then it says this. Then one in the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in respect by all the people, and he commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little little while. So this guy, Camilla, he's like the teacher. He's like the dude. He's like E.F. Hutton, you know? Remember the old commercial, when E.F. Hutton speaks, everyone listens. Well, when Camilla spoke, everyone listened. He was the teacher, the personal tutor of Saul of Tarsus, who would, we'll see in Acts chapter 9, ends up becoming Paul the Apostle after he gets converted. But Paul, Saul of Tarsus wanted to single-handedly destroy the movement of Jesus. But here Gamaliel is going to give some wisdom, verse 35. And he said to them, men of Israel, take heed to yourselves in what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago... Thutius rose up claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him, but he was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. And then after this, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days after of the census and drew away many people after him, and he also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. So he's like, guys, we've seen this before. You know, they come and they go. But then he says this in verse 38, and now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them 
wisdom alone. For if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. Literally, you're going to become a God fighter. And verse 40 says, And they agreed with him. And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them. Here's our third wave of opposition. They beat them with rods. They commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. Look at verse 41. And so they departed from the presence of the council rejoicing. Everybody say rejoicing. Rejoicing. That they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. That last line is so convicting to me. That they rejoiced and counted themselves as being worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. This is one of those statements that just defies our imagination. And it really exemplifies the paradox of Christianity. There are a lot of paradoxes in Christianity, like that the way up is down, that the way that you gain is to lose, that the way to be strong is to be weak, the way to receive grace is to be humble. Those are all paradoxes. They don't add up for us. Here Luke describes this paradoxical privilege of suffering for Jesus. And listen, this makes no sense to the watching world, but it makes all the sense in the world to those who are living for and waiting for another world. And so here's number four. Those who know their mission and who are on mission, they see the big picture. And I want you guys just to listen to me for a moment. This is one of the biggest problems I think we face as believers living in this Western culture. You don't see this a lot in other cultures. But we live in a culture that is so focused on this life. We live in a culture that is so focused on the here and now. We are a wealthy nation. And because of that, we are a nation that is materialistically minded. I mean, if we're honest, a lot of us, we spend money without even thinking about it. Our culture is always craving the newest thing. We want it now. That want it now mentality is rampant in our culture. It's why businesses like Amazon are so profitable. And that materialistic mindset can creep into our Christianity. And this is what it looks like. We can have the tendency to equate blessing from God with how much we have and how much we make. We can ask, hey, how are you doing? And someone say, I'm blessed. And they'll describe how they've got a good job and they just bought you know, this new whatever and their kids are healthy and their marriage is thriving. And listen to me, listen. I am not condemning that mentality per se. 
Because it's very easy to think that way. Nor am I suggesting that being healthy and having adequate finances is not a sign of being blessed. In in some ways it is. But this is what I want you to see. The early church had a completely different mindset. Completely different. They were way more focused on others than they were themselves. They were given to being focused on the needs of others over their own needs. That's why we've seen already they're selling homes and they're selling land and they're bringing the money and they're saying, here, give this to help whoever is in need. Why? Because they were focused on a king and a kingdom that was not of this world. They believed that later is longer. They believe, they really truly believe that, that hey, we, Jesus is coming back. He's going to set up a kingdom. We're going to be with him for eternity. And that's what we're focused on. That's what we're looking for. They believe that and they live like that. And this is why they could rejoice that they were counted worthy to suffer for Jesus. But I got to be honest. And I'm including myself in this. I don't know if many of us living in the West would would think that way. Because we wanna we want to avoid suffering at all cost. But they realized this is a spiritual battle that we're in. They realized that the opposition against them wasn't personal. They, they were coming against us because they were coming against Jesus. And Jesus told us to not be surprised by that. He said, they hated me, so they're going to hate you. So their mindset was more eternal than temporal. You know, Paul the Apostle would say this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, that the sufferings of this life are not meant to be compared with the eternal weight of glory that's awaiting us. He's saying the, the, the glory in eternity that is waiting for us is so weighty that our suffering here can't even compare. It's believing and understanding God has so much for us, and if we really truly believe that, it would blow our minds. They saw the big picture. And they were focused on Jesus. And so they rejoiced and they, that they were counted worthy to suffer for him. And then notice verse 42, they stayed on mission. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. In closing, I want to ask you a couple questions. Number one, what has God been speaking to you about lately? You personally. Have you been procrastinating in your follow-through? Have you been putting off that obedience? Have you been putting off taking that step of faith? Have you been putting off making that change that God has been stirring your heart about? Have you been putting off breaking off that relationship that you shouldn't be in? Can I encourage you to believe this, that Jesus loves you? And that he is for you, and he just wants you to trust him. And I also want to say this today to maybe somebody here who maybe doesn't know Jesus. 
You're not walking with Jesus. The Bible says today, not tomorrow, today is today of salvation. The Bible says tomorrow is promised to no man. In other words, you don't know if you're going to be here tomorrow. You never know. And so can I encourage you? Jesus is saying, hey, I love you. I died for you. I rose again to give you life. And and you know what? If you just put your faith in me today, you'll be justified, declared righteous in my eyes. Your standing with God changes. Your eternal destiny changes. You come to experience what people all over this world are really, really searching for, abundant life. It's found only in Jesus. And I want to encourage you today, respond to that. Open up your heart to that. Maybe you're here today and you've been playing the prodigal. You professed faith in Jesus a long time ago, but you walked away from him and you've been living for yourself and you've been doing your own thing and you realize that that it's not satisfying. Oh, there's moments. Can I encourage you? Prodigal son or daughter, don't wait until you end up in the pig pen like the prodigal son did and you've lost everything before you come to your senses. Respond today. Don't procrastinate today to the Holy Spirit as he's knocking on your heart. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for what we see here in the early church. And God, we desire today that you would just, that our hearts would be open to you, to your leading. Lord, I pray that we would not be those who procrastinate when you are stirring our hearts to move, to take a step of faith to make a change, to respond in obedience. Lord, may we be like your early church. Lord, as we see your Holy Spirit moving at Ashbury College and moving in Cedarville at that college, God, Lord, we we desire that you would move in, in that way in our lives. But we realize that it takes us being those surrendered vessels. And so, God, we give ourselves to you today. Lord, may we be a group of people on mission who know our purpose, who know our mission, and just following through as you would lead us. Running strong after you. Lord, may we be a people who have a loose grip on our stuff and a tight grip on you and on each other. Do that work in us, God, we pray.